Hey everyone, welcome back to the Dadcore Cinema Club. It's a podcast about the cable classic, the middle brow masterpieces. Those movies that never stop reminding you the simple joys of a nice hot cup of coffee, no matter how many times you watch them. I'm your host. My name is Brandon. Joining me as always is your other host. His name is... Charlie. Ooh, a little inflection on the end. A little pizzazz on the end. We're getting show. We're, we're practicing some things. We're getting a little showier around. You know, we're in the we're in like the thirty range here of the episodes. It's time to grow up. Yeah. Time to find our our voice. Put a little effort in. Yeah. And I'm not gonna. Yeah. Why not? Put effort into like learning anything and put some effort into saying my name weird. Yeah. You know, eventually, we'll say it a different way every week, and we'll find the right one. Audience, clap loud for us if we hit the right one. Speaking of the right one, if you didn't listen last week. That was one of the right ones you could listen to. Constantine, for Halloween, everyone's favorite Halloween picture. Constantine with Keanu Reeves. We talked about it with our good friend Joshua. If you haven't listened, go back and listen to it. Or listen to one of our older episodes. I don't know. Listen to the podcast. Listen to this episode. And on this episode, it's just us two. Classic dadcore. And what could be more classic dadcore than legendary director John Frankenheimer working with legendary dadcore actor Robert De Niro with cars and coffee and secret agents, I guess you would call them, and Paris, France, Nice, France. It's Ronin. 1998's Ronin. We've been talking about, like, we've been calling characters the white Ronin for months now, (laughs) I feel like. I think, like, every other episode we talk about a character and we go, yeah, this movie is really like a white Ronin movie. And it was about time we finally did a White Ronin movie. But then we finally get to Ronin, the White Ronin movie, and the guy's not even a Ronin. He's a false Ronin. He's a fake, a phony. <laughs> Spoiling the movie from minute <laughs> one of the podcast. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, I guess I probably shouldn't spoil this one because it was one that inexplicably I had never seen before. Looking at stuff about it now, it's like, Ooh, Frankenheimer, De Niro, David Mamet, those like cars checking off all of these uh boxes in my mind for like a movie that I definitely would have seen by now, but it's first time for me. You know, I hadn't seen this one until like last year either. Uh it was one I hadn't seen. I think it was actually it might have been the first Frankenheimer I ever saw. Wow, weird. Which is not like his old ones. Uh this one's fascinating because it was like a to put like our, us in like the headspace of 1998, this was like Frankenheimer's comeback movie. He'd had like a he was a classic director. Everyone's like I feel like has at least heard of or seen Manchurian Candidate or uh, fucking you've heard of Grand Prix or uh, fucking The Train, my favorite Frankenheimer movie I've seen or Seconds, which is an incredible sci fi picture. So many like great movies he made in, in 60s and 70s, but he had a rough patch in the 80s. In terms of like his life, like his career went away. Mm-hmm. And in the 90s, he had something of like a comeback arc. He had some celebrated TV work that he did, which landed him uh, on Ronin. And actually, his previous movie for, before Ronin was Island of Dr. Moreau, yeah. which is a disaster. And Ronin was like a comeback. It was, they, they gave him another movie and he came back with like, spoil my thoughts on this movie it's it's a great movie like it is just frankenheimer firing in all cylinders directing the crap out of a movie that somehow as a guy who started working in like the 60s 
feels as slick and modern as a 90s. It feels it slots right into 90s aesthetic while still maintaining his eye for like action set pieces, uh, his like incredible framing, his incredible blocking, all of his skills coming to play in a way that fits directly into the into the, like the the nineties aesthetic, what you would expect of like a nineties Robert De Niro actioner. It was sort of a, a big comeback for his career. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of strange to f- like, it is definitely like a, a comeback return to form, but it didn't exactly like spark some like uh final act to his career. Like no, it was like an end of form. Yeah. It was like a last burst of, of beauty. You, you set off the final firework in the pack mm-hmm. and it was beautiful and brilliant and then the night was over yeah because what after this he had like reindeer games which got taken away from him in post-production it's kind of like a a sad ending to what this movie seems to be like proposing a a a new way for him that didn't really and and i I mean who knows what would have happened if he hadn't passed Mm -hmm. in 2002 yeah i think like that's the real story there is uh, we're kind of cutting to the end of the narrative of Ronan <laughs> in terms of its place in the culture, but I think that's important to, 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 to contextualize like what this movie is. It is, it is a great legendary director who Frankenheimer kind of shredded old and new Hollywood. He had started working before new Hollywood hit and then effortlessly like this was a guy was a, he was like a contemporary with Melville and a friend of Melville. Like this is a guy who's like classic film. And then, um, straddled the line and became sort of a new Hollywood guy started, you know, along with the new Hollywood kept working alongside the new Hollywood guys. Uh, and you know, like is this old hand who, who had like one last burst of, in, of, of great, uh, filmmaking that he makes in 1998. And then who knows what he could have made after if like his life hadn't, I mean, if he hadn't tragically passed mm-hmm. it, it, I mean, he passed at, um, at 72, he he was like, he had lived, as they say, a full life. I mean, that's, it's not young, but like, who knows what, I mean, directors like, like uh, Spielberg and like uh, Eastwood still working, right? Like who knows how many more movies he could have made? What would Frankenheimer's Richard Jewell have been? Um, yeah. See, like if we're just kind of uh, jumping right into it, like you were saying, this movie does feel like very at home um, in these kind of nineties like espionage actioners that's i feel like that's actually kind of my problem with the movie a little bit mm-hmm. um which like we'll get more into as we talk about it but like it's undeniable there are still like these flashes of like really great frankenheimer like blocking and framing and these big set pieces but like also so much of the movie feels so much like Particularly, Mission Impossible, Dogs and Heat, Golden oh. Eye, and Heat. I was going to say Reservoir Dogs. There's Reservoir Dogs in there, right? Too. So, like, yeah, I feel like a lot of what's going on in the movie is kind of like inseparable to me from like what it's kind of mm-hmm. riffing on in the like wheelhouse that it's operating in. It's the way I think of this movie. I think it's um, it was a project that existed before Frankenheimer came on board. They had a script. Uh, they wanted De Niro on board. They get, they ended up nailing De Niro. So they got Mamet to punch up the script. Cause they're like, well, fuck, we can't film this <laughs> script with De Niro. Uh, they got Frankenheimer and the movie to kind of jump ahead to my thoughts at the end, I guess we're going to do this episode in reverse yeah. of the usual path. We're going to talk overall thoughts and then we'll get into specifics. Uh, 
the movie to me as like the the summary is I think it's kind of like a middle of the road script that is punched the fuck up mm. by Frankenheimer, De Niro, the whole cast. Yeah. Reno, Skarsgård, uh, Price, the whole cast is X. It's like it's like the people are working on this movie are all firing all cylinders and punching up what would what would in anyone else's hands be a very kind of like rote 90s action. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because like I think the cast is really, really great. But at the same time, like because of who they cast, it's impossible to like you have Jean Renault from Mission Impossible is in the crew. You have Sean Bean from GoldenEye is in the crew. Like you have De Niro like firing assault rifles in the street. So like it, it's like begging you to think about uh, these other movies while it's happening, which I don't think makes it worse uh, necessarily. No, it, it is. You can feel where the influences are coming on the studio side in producing this movie. You can feel the studio going, well, we want a script that does these things and these things. Mm-hmm. But I think what overpowers is you can feel the passion of the crew behind it. Frankenheimer's love of Paris, I think, shines through. He captures like Nice really nicely. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty fucking crazy. Apparently this took like an extra long time to shoot because uh, there was no second unit that like all of the like establishing shots and all of the like car chase shit frankenheimer just shot himself yeah him and his dp did it he didn't have like a camera op for those either so i think like <laughs> his dp did the, the was the camera op and he was directing for the second unit stuff yeah pretty crazy and the, like they apparently storyboarded out all of the car chases because mm-hmm. well, the studio i think it was suggested they would use cg for this chases because cg was starting to come in because cg is really good for like car crashes and things like that even in the even in the late 90s it was getting really good frankenheimer was like no he wanted to frankenheimer what he really focuses on is like he 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 called it like something ultra realism or something like that yeah like, hyper realism hyper realism the idea was he wanted to he wanted to make his works have a lot of verisimilitude. That's what's really important to him. Realer than real is what he would say. So he didn't want to use effects if he didn't have to. So yeah, he storyboarded the crap out of every single stunt so that when they would shoot it, they would only have to shoot it like the ones or whatever. Uh, so they wouldn't have to use effects to fix anything. Like they just planning over road effects, basically. Yeah, I mean, like any, like any other Frankenheimer movie, the craft, like, this yeah. script could be like fucking dog shit and like mm-hmm. he's gonna put cool images in front of your yeah. face and like the the his kind of like old style of like using these super wide lenses so that like you get a really big depth of field so like you can have these really interestingly blocked shots because you can like see what the actors are doing in the background mm-hmm. it it feels uh, like it was made by like an old sure hand like someone who really like has a grasp of the form but anyway it's about it's a heist movie yeah it just just needed to lead up front that i fucking man i just fucking love frankenheimer <laughs> before we say it a hundred more times we had to get our frankenheimer minute in yeah i mean he has like seconds i would put on you know, on like my yeah. Mount Rushmore of movies. Mm-hmm. That's that movie blew me away. I watched it for the first time, I think, like last year. Yeah, and it's just <sighs> incredible. His whole arc of uh, like political conspiracy thrillers, very good. Seven Days in May and 
Manchurian Candidate. There are some some very Frankenheimer shots going on in this too, with like television screens in the frame and mirrors in the frame. Mancho is full of that shit. Yeah, uh, he loves stuff like that. <laughs> Uh, yeah like so it sounds like you've seen like a few more frankenheimer movies than i have uh i've seen like i think a half dozen uh my favorite's the train the train Ronin is the train is fucking train's awful. awesome for lancaster they blew up real trains in that movie yeah man. Ugh, i mean that's real filmmaking that it it's like interesting to you know kind of come at this saying it's like a little derivative of movies that had come out like immediately prior to this but the guy making ronin is also the guy that was kind of like the forerunner of this kind of like big spectacle like character driven action movie like you look at the train 1964 off the top of my head 1964 is the train uh is like the progenitor of the modern set piece action film and like in many ways and so it's like you have that guy is making another big set piece action movie in, in the nineties. And it's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, the, the, basically the father of this shit is coming back to it. Yeah. Uh, right at the tail end of his career. He's closing the loop on this, this whole thing. Yeah. When, when like it, I think like this is for me, like a lesser Frankenheimer movie, mm-hmm. but that also just means it's like a fucking great, like it's a fucking cool movie. Like he's yeah. made some of the greatest movies. I mean, it's, a good ass time. I yeah. I'm not like as emotionally invested in this one as I am some of his other uh movies. But like any fucking heist movie iteration, I'm I'm there for. If you're getting a crew together to find some random bullshit that no one knows what it is, I'm there for that. Uh no, a- any movie that kind of like starts with title cards. This movie has like five title cards at the opening of it that just explain what a Ronin is. Mm-hmm. In like this like sick like pseudo Japanese like hey do you get it this is like samurai stuff font it's like in feudal Japan the warrior class of samurai were sworn to protect their liege lords with their lives the samurai whose liege was killed suffered a great shame uh, and they were forced to wander the land looking for work as hired swords or bandits <laughs> these masterless warriors were no longer referred to as samurai they were known by another name such men were called and then it goes title card mode, red, uh, full red screen, black text, Ronin. Yeah, it's in like the Mishima font. Yes. <laughs> and then the Ronin theme hits. It's fucking so sick. The guy who composed this movie had never worked on like a big movie before. Like, uh, like a Hollywood movie had never worked on one before. Frankenheimer picked him uh, like out of the blue. Like he's like this. He, he liked this guy for some reason. I think he worked on TV beforehand. And Frankenheimer's like, this guy, the guy used like, I forget what it was. He used some kind of like instrument that that Frankenheimer hadn't heard before. And Frankenheimer's like, use this guy. Whoa. I like the the way he played that. He's got the fanciest instruments. That's what makes his music (laughs) so good. It was a, oh man, it was a, 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 I don't know how to pronounce this, a duduk? D-U-D-U-K? I have no clue what that is. Uh, it's It's a woodwind instrument, a double reed. Oh, okay. It's an Armenian thing sure yeah yeah <laughs> he played that uh, like a part of the movie uh and wrote uh, frank was like we gotta get this guy blew his mind that's what killed him <laughs> what the fuck couldn't handle it he was like 70 couldn't handle the duduk but yeah this movie after those title cards it's just 
I fucking love the opening of this movie. It's 10 minutes of De Niro hanging out outside of a bar, just spying on it, just very quietly stalking around the outside. You see him like watching the entrance. He goes back behind it, stashes a gun. You don't even know what he's there for. It seems like he's in danger. He's just like scouting this environment and just it's hung in the air. Like, what is he even doing? Yeah, it goes on for a very long time of like Mm -hmm. guys in a little European bar, like doing a, you looking at me? Are you looking at me? Looking at me? Are you, is he looking at me? Like a lot of just cutting between silent guys. And this is where the movie, like we said, it pulled from like a lot of 90s stuff. I think this movie is also heavily pulling from like Melville, heavily pulling from Les Samurai. Yeah, I can see that. This uh, De Niro's character as the loner uh, character who's living this sort of like melancholic life separate from the world. And and you might also draw that as like a Michael Mann inspiration because Heat is that same kind. Of, but that's because Michael Mann's been pulling from Melville his whole career, right? Uh, that kind of like character type that Neil Macaulay is, is, is literally pulling from like samurai yeah. at its heart. Uh, but like, yeah, just there's a bit of, especially like him wearing that jacket in Paris. It's impossible not to see those and the way it lingers on him quietly in the shadow, just letting the images speak for themselves. It, it very much like reminds me of um, like samurai. Yeah. You're it's cool too. Cause you're not really sure. Like, who if like everyone in this bar are like your principal players of the movie or if like some are just random people Mm -hmm. it says nothing to you in this time like you don't even know what's going on until someone talks to de niro for the first time yeah the uh the woman from the truman show that's is that who that is my only point of reference for her yeah she's the one that's like the like truther that's trying to like tell him that it's fake Deirdre is she Irish this is another thing where I'm like she is she is no so her and Price are not Irish yeah but they they they're like English Uh, Price is Welsh she's just like British they had they had uh accent trainers on set I will not say whether or not their accents are are accurate Uh, I will say that I think they're not I mean but and I think it's very funny and I love it it keeps coming up on this podcast where like i don't know if someone is doing a bad irish accent or if i just think that the irish accent sounds silly and fake we at this point we need like a third host who's just our irish expert who like we need to get like sean from my right from my podcast Mm -hmm. and me just on speed dial and he can come into any podcast whenever we have a question about accents i feel like these are not these can't be good no because she's she sounds like she's she it's i like her character i like her performance Uh, she said she did the movie because it was her first time given a role where she had agency as a character instead of just being a woman in a man's story she was a character who had her own goals and her own drive and was just as important as the men i think she's great also i think her accent is cartoonish yeah she's same for price oh man one thing about her though that i thought was very um silly i was like because you know mamet is he's not credited as one of the writers because apparently he only accept like he'll only Mm -hmm. put his name on something if he's the only writer on it um but apparently one of the additions that he made to the script was like a love interest but like that's like so barely there (laughs) like they they kiss once yeah (laughs) 
I don't know. I like that because it keeps her from becoming like an element of De Niro's story. No, yeah. And, in, and it keeps her as like her own person. No, yeah. I don't think it's like yeah. bad. I just think it's funny that like yeah. one of the things to get credit for is no. just deciding that two characters kiss. <laughs> like, not really no, that's doing it's very funny. There was apparently there was an alt ending of the movie where she gets together with De Niro that they cut. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the they had like three options for the ending. That was one of them. So that might have been the, the thing where he was putting a bow on it mm-hmm. and they cut that in the end. But yeah, no, it is very funny that it's like, yeah, that, that's what I did is I added a scene where man, woman kiss. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I love uh, his first De Niro being his his first interaction with her is that's not a first. So it's when he's like leaving. So he like gets his beer and everything and he like just he a, stashed a gun not a beer leave he gets his gun not a beer just oh. a small drink well he asked he comes in he asks for a small drink they give him wine then he didn't say what drink i mean wanted. this whole movie is about guys drinking tiny drinking out of tiny yeah. cups <laughs> drinking small uh, what drinks. i was gonna say is he he says to her lady i never go into a place i don't know how to get out of and the way he says lady is immediately like this is just because i've seen the movie a million times heat but like it reminds you of saying lady why do you care about what i read or what i do <laughs> his delivery on lady is it's just one word but i'm just like oh it's it feels like the fucking line in heat yeah he's not hiding a gun behind the milk crates it's his book about metals or whatever the fuck <laughs> yeah he's just reading material yeah <laughs> but you yeah, know i just that, that opening is is it's like 10 minutes long of just in the this happens throughout the movie it's where i think the movie like in terms of the execution what's happening on screen is so 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 great is it's character dynamics, power dynamics, playing out on screen between characters who don't know who's on top and who's not, mm-hmm. all played silently. So, like, he comes in, they're immediately off-puttish to him. He insists on coming in to the bar, asks for a drink, which, like, calms things down, asks for the bathroom. He, tries to, he like, unlocks the back door so he can sneak out if he needs to, and then uses the rest. And they're like, there's this, like, play of... Do, what do they know about each other? Who has the upper hand in this interaction? Who knows what about who? That's all played like in almost entirely silently between them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely like you had brought up Reservoir Dogs. There's mm. no, like Reservoir Dogs. It feels like they're like, oh, I'm Mr. Pink and I'm the guy that talks really fast. They're like very like upfront about um yeah. like who their characters are and how they are going to interact with each other which i i feel like uh ronin's a little more subtle in its approach with its characters i was we'll get to the relationship later but i watched an interview so i'm not note about the subtlety of this movie interview with uh jean renault about the movie and something he, he complimented it for was that the relationship between renault and de niro in the movie which is like central to the film they're boys they're boys for is, life is like underplayed but like it's all in their performance and their interactions on screen. It's like it is never like they don't have a conversation where they have a heart to heart or something. Yeah. Like you watch them get closer through the film just through their interactions. And it's like under it's understated. A lot of this film is very understated. Yeah. That's like my favorite part of this movie is that like they pretty much every other character has some like splitting off or double crossing mm-hmm. moment in it, except for after like maybe half an hour into the movie, you know that Renault and De Niro are like best friends and would it's never the hurt moment, each other. It's literally the moment De Niro wakes up and Renault hands him a cigarette the second mm-hmm. he wakes up. And 
De Niro asks him, and that that's like the cutest moment. De Niro goes, you management? He goes, if I was management, I wouldn't give you a cigarette. Yeah. And the, the second you're there, you're like, oh, these are boys on the job. They've. <laughs> it's like when you start a new job and you immediately spot your work friend. Yeah, yep. That's what they did. They like clicked first day on the job. Yep. Yeah, he gets in there. He looks at Sean Bean and he's like, I fucking hate this guy. He looks at Renault and he's like, I love this guy. <laughs> this one's my Sometimes enemy. you just know. You know that's going to be your favorite coworker. This is a guy I'm going to have to pick on until he quits. <laughs> yeah, they start razzing the new guy. Bean? So when they leave the bar, they go to the the Reservoir Dogs location, which is the like, oh, we all met in the warehouse. All the guys come together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know each other. It's like, that's the most Reservoir Dogsy the movie gets is when they meet, I feel like. Yeah. the uh, And not like not to say that this movie doesn't have like some stylized dialogue i would believe that mammoth's contribution was like punching up every bit of de niro's dialogue because he's yeah, like he has so many one basically like one-liners yes he's, he's just like sarcastic. a sarcasm machine i think it works it's it's a weird thing where like the movie is understated except de niro has these mammoth one-liners which the filmmaking doesn't punch up very much like the filmmaking doesn't emphasize his one-liners they just happen and there's something about how like Frankenheimer's basically playing down the mammoth elements that are playing up. Yeah. That just gives us such like a unique tone. Yeah. And the doesn't play as snarky and De Niro's not reading them like a ham or anything. He's kind of underselling yeah. them, which is great. I love how he's delivering these lines. He's delivering it. So when he gets there, someone asks him if he's killed someone before <laughs> and he says, I hurt someone's feelings once. So funny. And he, <laughs> he so doesn't funny. play it like he's joking. <laughs> it's very funny. He plays it like he's a, he's, he plays it like he's the smartest guy in the room, knows he's the smartest guy in the room, is pissed off that he's the smartest guy in the room and does not want to deal with everyone else around him. Yeah. It's, sounds like um how someone would do the line in like a old noir voiceover mm-hmm. yeah it's like bogart reading the line there's another line that sticks out to me as being like very much like that um where he's like talking to some guy that he's like getting information from and renault's like oh how do you know that guy and he's like we went to high school together <laughs> pretty funny <laughs> it is but uh so they meet in this warehouse, this Irish woman. Do they say she's from the IRA at the beginning of the movie? I think it's obvious I don't, that she They is. never say IRA. They just say Irish terrorists a bunch. So No, they say IRA at the end of the movie. Oh, do they? Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah, they, they do about Price. They even mention um, Sin... Yeah, Sinn Féin. But apparently Sinn Féin he's movie. like too extreme even for the IRA. That's how they get away. So this movie is a little anti-IRA. Let's just be upfront about that. It's like... Yeah, I can't imagine the ira or Sinn Féin or like any like irish nationalists would be like super thrilled about <laughs> the portrayal of the irish in this movie yeah but so so like she's when you get the character her name is deirdre played by natasha uh McElhone? sure i don't know how to say her last name natasha uh, i'm on a first name basis with her so oh, okay yeah. natasha uh she's like an ira operative who's brought them back to this base their goal is to capture a briefcase we don't know what's in it. They got to get it from people who have it. And it, that's it. That's their mission. Yep. They got to get the briefcase. The rabbit's foot is what they're looking for. The pot of gold. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's 
it's every Mission Impossible movie. There's a thing, it's in Europe, and we gotta go get it. And, and she's assembled this team, and it's a team of tons of guys. Uh, there's, what is it, five? Yeah, there's five guys. You have a De Niro who's like the leader, the smart guy, the the man in the know, the expert uh, of the team. He's like your, he's, he's your Ethan Hunt, right? You have Renault, who is your guy who can get you anything because he's from, he's, he's, he's Parisian. Yeah, he's the local anything boy. In Paris. He's a local boy. You have, um, you have Skip Sudif, who plays the driver. His skill is he's, uh, he's the best driver they got on the team. Yeah, that part is super fucking funny too because they have a guy that's just, he's like there because he's good at driving. But then later in the movie, spoilers, when he dies, everyone else just starts driving cars and they're all just like incredible so at driving. Good at it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like anyone could have been driving the whole time. Well, you need him in the car so it's ready to go, you know? Yeah. That's what he's there he, for. He also, like, apparently looks over all the cars. He's, like... Yeah. He's the guy who also... He picked out the cars. Like, his skill is he, he knew what cars to get. He picked out the cars. He customized them. He got them ready for the show. Like, you need... I don't... Maybe De Niro couldn't pick out whatever car they were driving this movie. The Audis. He says, Audis. like, we need a fucking Audi. He just wants to play with toys. This is, like, in Tremors 2, where they tell, like, the guys so that they can get whatever they want. And the main guys just get some dynamite and RC cars. And then Bert shows up in the movie and he's like, yeah, the Mexican government gave me like a 50 cal sniper rifle, a bunch <laughs> of like explosives. Uh, this is C4 for my personal collection. Yeah. Well, this like we were kind of saying before we were recording is like a very car like Frankenheimer fucking loves cars. This is like a very car guy movie for a very specific kind of Euro car guy. Mm hmm. Like this is for Frankenheimer himself because he lived in Paris. He loves France and I'm sure he loved like European cars. Yeah. So like this is him making the car movie for him, the car guy. Yeah. The uh, people watching, uh, you know, like bullet and stuff and being like, damn, this is pretty cool. But what if instead of a Mustang, it was a BMW. And he did the same thing with French connection Two, which like French connection one takes place in. Is it New York? Yeah, New York. Then French Connection Two takes place in in France because he loves France <laughs> so much, and he filmed he filmed it. Uh, so yeah, so you have uh, you have the leader of the pack. You know him well. Uh, you have uh, the guy who can get you anything, the local boy. You have the driver. You have the computer guy, the guy in the chair, the German flew by Stellan Skarsgård, ex KGB. And then you have the bozo. Every team needs the bozo. Sean Bean playing a, <laughs> insisting that he's like an SAS operative. Yeah, he's just the wild card of the group. He could do anything at any time. It's fucking crazy. It, I love it because the spoiler of this character is that he's a bozo. He's not actually military. He's just, some he's guy. just a liar. <laughs> he's just a guy who lies. But like, I was. This is my second time watching the movie, so I went in knowing that. And you can watch him play everything early on as a bozo the whole time so when i first watch it, you're like you're not sure if he's just like cocky but on second go it's very obvious that he's not just cocky he's like doesn't he's playing it like a kid who's lying yeah because not just lying too he's like trying to impress de niro the specifically whole time, de niro which is really yeah. funny when they're making the plan and they're, they're getting their equipment together he like goes over to de niro's like what kind of weapon do you favor yeah and de niro's like a 1911 and he, and he starts like commenting on it and they're like He's trying to like jockey for position as the weapons guy. He's like, yeah, I'm kind of a, I'm like a munitions guy. I'm a weapons guy. Well, like even before he says a 911, he's like, what kind of weapons? And De Niro's like, I don't care. 
He's like, it's, he said it's a tool. Yeah, you give me a toolbox, tool I use whatever's in it. And like Sean Bean's insisting you have to pick one because it's like he's trying to show like, oh, this is because I know more about weapons than you do. Yeah. And the, on first watch, I'm like, oh, it's because he's like, he's just like an asshole military guy. On second view, it's very obvious. Like, no, Bean's playing this as like, he doesn't know anything. He's like, uh, everyone grows up knowing a kid who like can't stop lying about everything yeah. in their life. <laughs> he's the kid in your neighborhood, it, whether it was your friend, maybe it was your older brother, maybe it was a cousin. You knew a guy, a kid who was like, oh yeah, I know Krav Maga. Like my dad taught me all the special forces. <laughs> That's Sean Bean in this movie. He's your, he's your douchebag friend who wouldn't stop lying all the time to impress you. Man, he's great. He's so like... He's such a bozo. <laughs> it's funny too, because like, in, I mean, in continuing to spoil this movie, like him—that's what the podcast does. Him, him popping up in the beginning, being like a dickhead or whatever, and then just kind of like disappearing from the movie once he's outed. Because of Goldeneye, the whole movie, I'm expecting him to like pop back up as a bad guy, but he just never does. No, he just doesn't. They they toyed with it. Apparently, Frankenheimer had a plan. In an, in an earlier script where he gets killed off to like raise the stakes of the movie, but he decided it was better to just dismiss it. Yeah. Like De Niro calls him out for being a phony and then they're like, all right, you could leave now. And he just does. And he doesn't cause any more problems for anyone. I, I fucking love it. He doesn't, there's no twist. He doesn't come back mad and try to fight the team. He just like goes home with his tail between his legs. Cause he got caught being a liar. Uh huh. It just so kind of felt like a way that the movie maybe was like, consciously working with the fact that you would have golden eye in your head while you were watching it to mm-hmm. not bring him back to just actually like dismiss him from the movie while we're in the the the, the secret base which is like a fucking empty warehouse uh, and they're getting their plan together there's a lot of coffee gags that happen in this movie not just people drink coffee out of tiny cups while they're like planning we get again de niro's character sam his mind for like scoping out a scene and always being like 10 steps ahead of everyone else so he sees like stellan skarsgård sitting by a table who is like he's like this scrawny uh nerd with like glasses he's like and he he seems evil because he's german uh is he german and ex-kgb yeah i thought he was like eastern block uh uh he's german but he worked for the kgb so i think he was a native german who joined the kgb is the idea okay um, sure because they kept saying he was german yeah but i mean there were i mean half of germany was soviet for a while so yeah but i think he was like literally like not russian guy living in germany he's a, um his name's gregor yeah I mean, is that maybe that's maybe he's russian uh, he's actually he's <laughs> yeah, fucking evil this is the point whatever doesn't matter who cares Stellan Skarsgård, he's just European. He's just evil. You don't have to. If I saw him on my team, I'd be like, that guy's evil. Yeah. <laughs> and De Niro notices it too. Because he's like, he's drinking coffee and he slyly sets down a cup. And this is just like, again, Frankenheimer capturing like, the notes. And he like sets on the cup and the camera focuses on the cup of coffee for like a split second. Mm-hmm. And then like, without even noticing it, a second later, like he accidentally tips the coffee over. So Skarsgård catches it. Yeah. To prove that he has, re- like, he like, just without any other characters in the scene noticing like De Niro's character is setting up this sequence where he can trick Skarsgård into catching a cup of coffee yeah. before it falls on him to test his reflexes to find out if this guy's a fighter. Yep. He tricks him into a tech exposing his like Spider-Man 
<laughs> drink catching. Yes, it's this is this is Peter Parker <laughs> catching <laughs> the the food in the, in the fucking cafeteria. Yeah, and then he's like, "You're ne- you're not a. I knew you weren't a nerd. You ain't no nerd. I could have swore you were unforgivable." But yeah, I mean that doesn't really like. It doesn't expose him as being like sinister, though. He's just not what he. Yeah, being played by Skarsgård exposes him. To yeah, being sinister. <laughs> but you know, like this is like De Niro's character is scoping out the threats in the room, basically, and he knows Reno's his best friend forever. They met, they fell in love the first time they looked at each other, so they knew they were going to spend their lives together. Yeah. So he didn't have to. He knew he trusted him, and then he saw this guy, and he's like, "That guy's fucking. That's Stellan Skarsgård. Like I've seen movies." That guy's bad news. Mm-hmm. I gotta test his reflexes in case it comes up later. Find out if he can uh, move. He doesn't buy what Sean Bean's selling for a second. He, like every interaction, no. he's just like punking him pretty much. Mm-hmm. Like there's he's he's like you you said he was he was picking on him until he quits the job. Yeah. Basically. At one point during the like warehouse thing, uh, Sean Bean's talking about how like he would never break under torture, and De Niro's like, "Oh yeah, I've been tortured. I talked like everybody talks." But then he's bullshitting because like Sean Bean pushes him like, what do they do to you? No, sorry. The driver asked him, what do they do to you? And he's like, oh, yeah, they they like they gave they me, gave a, grasshopper. me a, a grasshopper. What's that? And he describes the drink, the cocktail. Yeah, he's like some creme de menthe, gin. He's also like he's not taking anyone's shit. He doesn't buy like Deirdre's stuff either. Yeah. He's like when she says, hey, you're going to go buy weapons from these people. He immediately questions. So are these people you've done business with or are these just people? that gave your people a number and now we're following up on them. Like are these people you trust or are these people whose number you got? All right. Like, did you do your research? And immediately he's calling out the IRA is not doing their own research mm-hmm. on things, not like being pr- not properly uh, setting up the team for success. And like, it plays really well to like now knowing the twist at the end that he's not actually Ronan, that he's still like working for the CIA. Like, it works in the character that he's playing, but it also works in that he's just like using every moment to try and like gather as much information mm-hmm. about what's going on as possible. Yeah. And first watch, you see him when they're in the plan, she's talking about the briefcase and he keeps asking what's in the briefcase. And he mm-hmm. even asked at one point, he's like, he asked what's in the briefcase and they won't answer. And he's like, if it's it, okay, if it's amateur hour, I need, need he starts like yeah. saying, I need a hundred K up front. I need a hundred K when the mission finishes. I need it in my bank account tonight. If it's amateur hour, I got to get paid. If it's amateur hour, you're paying me now. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and he's and like, like uh, she says, like, you don't need to know what's in it. And he's like, I need to know if it's going to blow up. I need to know if it's going to be chained to somebody's wrist. Like, I kind of do need off. to know, like, what this shit is yeah. that we're doing. It's like at first, like, it's like, oh, he's just like the expert on the team who's fed up with this, like, amateur hour bullshit. On second watch, it's like, oh, no, he's uh, he's investigating. Like, yeah, he's, he's a he cop. Is, <laughs> he's pushing. Yeah, he's he's asking too many questions. He's giving himself away as a cop. But it's okay because he's too much of an asshole to be a cop. He's too chill. Like he's too cool. But uh, they go to get some like some weapons, right? Yeah, the uh, sketchiest deal ever. <laughs> like, and annoying. they they get there again. Another thing of like sh- again, just Sean Bean being a bozo. They're in the car, and Sean be- like a uh, the driver goes to light up a fucking cigarette, and De Niro's like, "Can you not do that?" You know, classic movie shit. Sniper can spot a cherry from a mile away. Like, yeah, don't what fucking he says too, like, uh, 
it makes it harder to see out of the car at night if there's well that's what sean bean so like de niro's just like can you not light up and then sean bean looks at de niro smugly smiles and goes makes it harder for night vision eh?" yeah like he's trying to like he he's saying it not because he needs not because he knows, but because he needs everyone in the car to know that he knew yeah. oh, I as know much as De Niro yeah. knew. Yeah. He's like, I need you to, I, I am begging for you to scratch behind my ears and pat me on the head and call <laughs> me a good boy for knowing this basic fact. I'm a real army guy. Yeah, I like that, um, like the whole setup of like them being Ronin is that they're all like former, like special ops from whatever country they're from. But yeah. now they're just like doing the sketchiest, like littlest <laughs> information. Like they've really had to uh, dumb down their operation now that they've been cut loose by th- by the motherland. Well, it's a classic forty-seven Ronin story, you know. Yeah, this movie was like this movie was based on what the book Shogun, I think, was called. Basically, this. I mean, I was kind of gonna wait until a little further in but another like little problem i had with the movie was that i was like oh it's it's cool that they're like the movie's called ronin they're like playing with this idea of ronin and like you have that in your mind but then there's like a whole scene where a character actually talks to de niro about the ronin and they talk about how they are like ronin and i'm just like i don't fucking i get it (laughs) i I like i love that scene we'll get to it i love that scene (laughs) with the warhammer guy yeah the warhammer guy is so cool (laughs) the guy who's like french brian cox yeah i mean it is cool i just it felt like so overkill on the metaphor to me see i love heavy-handed shit like that (laughs) that is like i love it because this movie is like it's kind of it's kind of a dumb movie. Um, it's an action movie. It's not that deep. This does not have the like thing with heat where you spend three hours with this movie and you get in touch with these characters and this sense of loneliness and melancholy and this this, this feeling of like remorse at the end of this the guy losing his life for the life he's lived. Um, it's no, it's this, it's just like a hundred minutes. It's this two hour long actioner. And it's kind of like a dumb guy movie that has these hints we talk a lot, I think, about the smart dumb guy movie, uh-huh. the like poetic jock movie. Yeah. Like this is right, I think, right in that zone. Oh, and I think sure. that scene where it hammers you over the head with like, no, you have to understand this is what the Ronin are. Like, <laughs> let me explain the story to you by having this like old, this old like retired guy who was like at peace with life, who just into his little hobby of painting his little figures um, and explaining it. I don't know. It gives it this like. It it tries to inject this like poeticism in the middle of this like ang- this like loud action movie that I just really love the contrast between like this loud car movie that just takes a break to go like no let me talk to you about the themes real quick. No, I do love that like beat in the movie and like mm-hmm. I think it's really great. I was just like that whole scene. I was just like imagining like the world's dumbest guy watching this movie and like seeing yeah. the title cards and being like Japan. What the fuck does that have to do with anything? And then, like, <laughs> having a character being like, you know, we're kind of like Ronan, and the guy watching just being like, oh, whoa, these guys Joe are Rogan. like the Ronan. Joe Rogan watching this movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but anyway, they they go to buy some guns. It, I, when I, so when they get the stakeout, the guys with the guns come by and they only have like half the guns in the car uh-huh. and they're like, they're trying to bait them into the sketchiest, 
like shooting gallery ever because they pull the second car into a tunnel and they go, don't worry. The rest of the guns are in this tunnel where we can shoot you from They're He's the guy's doing the like De Niro Goodfellas, like telling her to like walk down the alley thing. It's like, no, just walk down this dark alley. Keep going. And like De Niro immediately spots him and goes like, I'm not going down there. <laughs> oh, I'm not going. Uh, down this there. is the dumbest plan ever. And you can watch Sean Bean stand there and he's basically pissing himself scared. He is like shaking and you can see him as he works up the strength. This is like the Sean Bean is so good in this movie. I was like playing an idiot. And who's like so desperate to prove his confidence. He's like basically shaking and scared. And you can see him like eventually he goes like, hey, me half the money. Just, 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 just give me the money. Like, I, I got, you can see him like he's not even confident, but he's struggling to, to, to portray this air of like a tough guy. Like De Niro won't do this. So I have to do it to prove that I'm as tough as him or tougher. And he insists on marching down. He has a part where he says, like, oh, are you scared? And De Niro's like, yeah, I'm scared. Do you think I'm hesitating because I feel good about all this? <laughs> you fucking idiot. Yeah, there's, a, there's another line between them where he goes, like, um, afraid you'll lose your skin or something like that, aren't you? And De Niro's like, yeah, it protects my body. <laughs> yeah, it covers my body. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the At another point in this, uh, he's like, yeah, I'm not going down that tunnel. And Sean means like, you're a smart guy. And he's like, uh, I don't, no one's ever said that to me before, but I'm not no, going down He tells down me there. You, you think too much. Oh yeah, you think too much. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know about that, but I'm not going <laughs> down that yeah. tunnel. So, so they go, I like Reno's reason for going. Cause Reno's just like, they pay me to go. I go down the tunnel. He's, simple as that. A, he's the true Ronin of the movie. He is uh, the professional. He is the professional. <laughs> Victor. Is that his name? The professional. Vincent. Yeah, Vincent. 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 Vincent, the professional. Like, the you would think that De Niro is the Ronin, but he's not the Ronin. Jean Renault is the Ronin. Well, th- you know, that's what Renault stands, that's what it means. It's actually the French translation. <laughs> French for Ronin. Jean Ronin. <laughs> Jean Ronin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's he's the only one in this that is, like, operating by a code. Like I think that's also goes that's I'm gonna I'm gonna project as much onto this as possible because Frankenheimer's not here to stop me. Mm-hmm. Uh it, this is like in my mind, Frankenheimer loves France so much, was such good friends with the Jean-Pierre Melville <laughs> that he's just like, no, the French guy is the most honorable guy in the movie, just because I just love I love the French so much. This is my tribute to the works of Melville. I mean, and Jean Renault is just so fucking cool. Yes. You can't have him double cross anyone. It's not believable. You're like, that guy wouldn't do that. He's cool. Yeah, I mean, everything he's ever done in every movie in the 90s specifically is cool, right? Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Everything he did in the movie Leon. Yep, that's all cool stuff. All of it. Normal, cool stuff going on in Normal Leon stuff. Professional. Can't have him do anything bad in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Only normal stuff for Jean Renault. But uh, he's like, yeah, I'll go in. And De Niro's like, I'm going to stay back here. But they, mm-hmm. you feel that they have an understanding that he's like, I got your back. Yeah. And then there's a shootout. And that shootout's fucking good. That movie, so that scene is really tense. The driver pulls up and starts just like, first of all, they didn't pay for those guns yet. He just starts jacking the guns from the back of the first car. He's also It's a like pro. he spots that there was trouble. And he knows shit's going to go down. So he's going to secure half the load at least. Yeah. He, I mean, he... 
he gets God, so he's not as much of a pro, but he's also uh, doing his thing throughout the movie. Yeah. So they get the gun. So the gunfight happens, and it's really good. It's really good. It's it's a really good gunfight. It's it's brutal. It's uh, it's it's like shot in that realistic style that Frankenheimer uses for his films. It's not like he doesn't do heightened violence. He doesn't believe in it. Uh, he he believed that like gunfights should be like plain and scary. Like they shouldn't. It shouldn't be like it shouldn't be like a spaghetti Western people fly back 10 feet, right? Like it should be like blunt and like straightforward and it should be shot like real um, as much as possible. Yeah. And after it's over, Sean Bean is like jacked up. He loves it. No, he's scary. He's about to piss himself again. Yeah, he's like, yeah, that, that'll get your blood going. He's like, he's putting on such an air. It's so fucking funny. He's like, yeah, we did it. We got, we got the guns. We got the money. Like, that's what we call a good mission, right? And then well he makes done. them pull over so he could puke. That's a job well done, boys. He's trying so hard to make it home before he accidentally has to puke in front of all his friends. At least he tells him to pull over. Yeah. That's a, it would have been a party foul to puke into the car. But yeah, this is just like, he's so fucking funny. That's his barely keeping it together. I mean, he doesn't last much longer in the movie before De Niro no. gets him with the old boathouse color trick. <laughs> First, he gets him with the old coffee trick. And like the the final straw is Sean Bean drawing up a plan to have people standing directly across from each other shooting <laughs> at each other. Yeah, they're doing their plan. Uh, it's when De Niro asks her like for more money and she has to walk. The Deirdre has to walk away to take a phone call. Sean Bean spotting like a vacuum of power of leadership in the room walks up to the whiteboard draws a diagram of two guys across the street it's like I got a shoot over here and a shoot over here they're gonna shoot and I love that what De Niro does is he erases it and says redraw it and Bean just like freezes because <laughs> they think just draw you, you all all he drew were two circles and he immediately freezes being asked to redraw it yeah I just like that like De Niro has a, a breaking point mm-hmm. that like all right, I was fine just messing around with this guy for a while, but now it's time for him to go. <laughs> I, I love that scene as he plans. He also plans a sabotage. He sets a cup of coffee on the counter behind Sean Bean when he walks up to the whiteboard, just smoothly sets it behind him. Then he starts yelling about the drawing so that he backs up and actually knocks the coffee onto himself. And he starts screaming at him like, you want to talk about an ambush? I ambushed you with a cup of coffee. <laughs> His old man fighting style. Yeah, like his final straw was, you drew a stupid plan. You need to get the fuck out of here. Yeah, and everyone else is like, yep, uh, here's some cash. Uh, don't don't contact us ever again. Yeah, like you said his final straw was the, what's the boathouse? What's the color of the boathouse at? Uh, some fucking military. Some fucking city. Thing. Which, like, I think in reality, that city doesn't even have a military base. Because De Niro just picked a random city and played it with confidence. Like, the character. Picks a random city and plays with confidence because he doesn't have to fucking know the answer. The point is that, like, Sean Bean immediately crumpled and could not tell him that that was a bullshit question. Yeah, I mean, just say a color, dude, and you're in the clear. Say anything. The guy... uh, Sean Bean shines so bright for the first, like, 30 minutes (laughs) of this movie, and then he's gone. It's just, I... So good... Such a good change of pace for his character to not have to, like, die in a movie. Yeah, he suffers a fate worse than death. Yeah, humiliation. He gets embarrassed in front of his boys. 
Again, Beresford has boys into like a, and like a lady he was probably into. Mm-hmm. And banished. British guy embarrassed in front of the Irish, I think, is probably the worst you can go. Oh, yeah, they can't stand that. Oh, wait a minute. Why do they even hire him? The I don't know. They keep talking about a guy in a wheelchair who like suggested all these. Yeah, do you think like Sean Bean was like like happy he got like Sean the character like happy he got out? I was like, good, I didn't want to help the IRA anyway. <laughs> he doesn't care. He's a mercenary. But uh they get the guns and they go to they go to Nice. They do some uh, recon where De Niro gets to go on a fake date with a. He drinks a cute, tiny little cup of coffee in like in the, uh, in the lobby of a of a fancy hotel room. That's what it, that's what I imagine it's like in Europe. Everyone's just constantly sipping unknown substances out of the world's tiniest cups and glasses. He uh that that sequence of them doing espionage is, I I love it. It's them. It's one of the best sequences of the movie, I think. The way they play it is like so cute uh, with him and her. The the way they're lying and getting their their like espionage going. It's like they're sitting. He's like walking around town with like a, a uh, brochure. And inside of it is a photo of the car they're looking for <laughs> that like is going to be carrying the package so he can spot it. So you can pretend he's reading a thing and he has her. He has her walking with him like she's his wife. They do the they do the classic trick with the the camera where he's like, take a picture of me and my wife. And then they stand conspicuously in front of the team of bad guys that they're going after so they can get photos of them in the background of their little family photo in air quotes. He does the I love when he hands a guy the camera. He's like, here's how you take the photo. And he just snaps like a hundred photos uh-huh. showing this guy how to use his camera so he can take pictures of these like Russians. Yeah, I like that he adds a little freak element into it, too, where he says, like, let me get a picture of you with my wife. (laughs) Yes. And then he says, keep taking photos of my wife by herself. Sneaks off and sabotages some luggage. Like, let me get some of just my wife. It'd be so fun. Like, ostensibly, they're posing as just normal American tourists. Mm -hmm. But then he's also, like, (laughs) just asking some guy for, like, 10 pictures of him with his wife. You know what? That has, I've had that happen when I was on a trip. Someone came up to a person in my group when I was in high school uh, and was like, asked for a picture with the person in our group. Bizarre. That person's in some weird jerk off binder now. He does like the, the trick. He puts a, the, the, Hey, no entry sign up against some luggage. So it falls and he pays the guy some money so that he, so the dude takes the luggage, it drops the thing so he can, when it creates a loud noise, the group that they're spying on all draws their fucking guns and you can spot how many guys on the team has. I love when spy movies do shit like that, where it's like we tricked them into revealing all their capabilities. Yeah. But now that, uh, bellhop that moved the luggage is probably on some like Russian assassination list. Oh, Oh, he's dead. (laughs) He's hundred. He's everyone at that hotel is dead. Uh, That is something about this movie. Some like, pedestrians get killed Die. like a yeah. lot <laughs> this movie does not yet yeah, does not shy away from the idea that when people open up in the middle of when they're planning their fucking mission and they're just drawing the road on a on uh, the whiteboard they neglect to draw the fact that they are planning an ambush in the city because they don't draw buildings in their like ambush chart. They just draw roads. And every time I watch this movie, I forget. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like the countryside or something. No, it's like 
the fucking middle of a marketplace is where they're going to ambush these cars. Yeah, and not not it's not like an American city. It's like extremely dense, tiny roads. Like there, it's nice. It's it's a crowded city. Yeah, actually, people walking around. It's actually like a walkable place. Yep. Yeah, they run over some pedestrians. They squib up some extras and mm-hmm. shoot some pedestrians. They blow up some pedestrian cars. Yep. It's it's rad. It's pretty cool. Uh, speaking of like you, you mentioned earlier about like the kiss, the one kiss scene. I the kiss scene is it's it's a classic move. It's the like, hey, watch out, hey, the cops are coming. Yeah, we're, let's make out. Yeah, act like we're making out. So I think that we're, and then you actually make out. I think that yeah, that's like a I, kids watch this movie. It's going to teach you a lot about how how to, to get ahead in how life, how to assault someone, <laughs> <laughs> how to cutely <laughs> harass uh, your coworkers. Your boss. Yeah. Is this, if you ever wondered how you could make out with your boss, <laughs> here's how. You got to get them on a stakeout. You got to, you got to get them with the classic, the cops are coming quick. Make out with me. It, it, I love it because they, they do the, oh, pretend we're looking at a map car coming. Pretend we're looking at a map. Then no one suspects anything. And then the cops come and dinner is like, make out with me. <laughs> you, you can't do the map trick a second time. No, no, no. That's a one and done. But, that was mamma coming in mamma's like you can't do the map trick two times guys but then when they kiss she likes it she's like maybe we should kiss for real mm-hmm. that's the weirdest part of this movie is that she's like hey let's with no ulterior motive she goes she's like let's keep making out yeah especially like i guess because it's bobby up to that point like that character hasn't been like sexualized in any way, really. Like nothing and for the rest of the movie, she's not. Yeah, like there's nothing indicating that like there that it's like possible for there to be any kind of romance between her and any of the other characters. But if you sit in a car alone with De Niro for long enough, yeah, it's inevitable. It's going down. Then the movie immediately turns into a car movie. It hasn't been a car movie for the first like forty five minutes. It's like dudes hanging out and drinking coffee. And then it turns into like car movie city. Mm-hmm. Like the beginning. I don't know how you feel about the car chase in this movie. I think it's one of the, I think it's like some of the best car chases. Oh, it's fucking incredible. There's, there's two car chases. They're like 10 minutes each. Uh-huh. It's like but, a big chunk of the movie. And the first car chase opens with what I think is one of the, and I had to, st- I had to like stop myself from showing you this image before the movie, before you watched it. Cause I knew you hadn't seen it. It starts with one of the essential images of cinema, mm-hmm. which is Bobby De Niro with a bazooka. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Blowing up and flipping a car. Pops up through the sunroof. It's a good thing the car guy was like, we got to get a sunroof car. So, so De Niro could pop up from the sunroof with a bazooka. The car chase is so cool because like we had talked about in our bullet episode that like part of the reason it's so cool is because it's in San Francisco and it has like that vertical Mm-hmm. element the in the uh car chase in this movie in nice also has like some big vertical things but it also has this element of the streets being like incredibly narrow and then being like an inch away at all times from like clipping side view mirrors off of other cars and in both of these chases it's not just that the city's amazing and this they have progression this first chase starts off in the city then it goes off road there's a beautiful mm. panning shot of them going through like a forest uh the cars are like the lower part of the frame it just keeps a lot of the landscape in the image and then it goes back to the city 
it like goes through a market. They do the classic, like cut through the market. There's another car tailing behind the it's De Niro and Reno are behind. So it's like them. So like the market starts to fix itself up and then they come through classic and then like ends at a diner. So it goes through this progression through the city, outside of the city, back into the city again. Uh, so there's this sense of, of a geography that this, that they go through that changes. It's not just, Oh, we're going through the same city through these same blocks over and over. It's we're, we're there's, there are different stages to the race. Yep. Not the race. They're, just, uh, <laughs> they're, not, they're, not, they're not having fun. Well, it is like when, because initially when the car guy is like, I need Audis, I was like, oh yeah, cool. They got the four-wheel drive like rallycross car. But then like, essentially the car chase is like a rallycross type race. They're like out in some fields and then they're in a city. It like actually makes sense why they chose, it's not just a car that looks cool. It seems like actually functional to what they're about to be doing. And I think that that's the benefit of like Frankenheimer being a car guy. Uh, is that like that's the perfect car for the type of it. so he like picks this car and then he knows exactly what he can do with the car that he has picked and what the advantage of having that car is and how how different that can make his chase the this chase has a shot that's so fucking cool and i don't know why it's not in more mo- well I, I imagine it's like pretty dangerous but uh at one point a car is like driving into the camera and the camera like cranes up at the last second and the car goes underneath it and it's like such a crazy like dangerous looking dynamic shot that like i had never seen before pretty cool yeah there's there's a lot of great shots of just like hey we slapped the camera to this back wheel of this car like shots that you would see a lot used a lot in the batman earlier this year where it's like, oh, we we got a we got a shot that is the back quarter of the car that's in front, and then we have a mainly the front end of the pursuing car in the frame. Yeah, which and then they do vice versa, where you get from behind uh, the front quarter of the car and the car in front of it. I mean, and that's something that, that there's like an hour of that kind of footage in Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. That like another thing that like that's a Frankenheimer thing that like yeah. he developed a lot of these techniques for grand prix which is like car pornography that movie is like i need to see that movie over three hours of just f1 races essentially we need to do that movie it's fucking cool we need to do so many frankenheimers (laughs) yeah anyone listening if you don't want to like spend a day watching grand prix if you just watch the uh opening title sequence the Saul Bass design it's just like a bunch of like tiled close-ups of like pistons going and like people revving engines for like five minutes it's incredible it's like I don't know how you could not watch those few minutes of film and like not come away thinking that cars are like the coolest shit that man has ever created I I don't care about like cars in terms of ownership like i have a car but i drive a 2007 ford focus i'm not like a i gotta own a nice car but cars are just like one of the most cinematic things we've ever invented as a species they're cool they're so fucking cool to put on camera holy shit <laughs> i love a race movie that is obsessed with that. i like i will never remember the car that's used in most movies just because i'm not like i don't have that but i appreciate 
when a when a movie loves cars and portrays them in such a way, it's like smoking. It's cinematic. Uh, driving is cinematic. It just when a director loves a car, it sh- fucking shines through so much. When you get a guy smoking and driving, oh boy! But it just incredibly constructed chase sequence. It just cannot be stressed enough that like, Frankenheimer's hand here is. It's just great. It's just like he's he's one of the great car directors, basically. Yeah. Uh, I saw that apparently he made all the actors go through like a driving school just so that their like insert shots of them moving the wheel and stuff would look more accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they they did that. He made them go to driving school. Uh, so an interview, they interviewed the Renault I listened to or watched. He said they don't usually let you drive in movies, but... Uh, it's not that hard and I like to do it. And then he got to do it for, he was excited. He got to do it for this movie. He said the direction that uh, Frankenheimer gave him was, or wasn't him. It was the guy who plays the driver. Uh, Skip said that the direction he got from Frankenheimer was um, don't hit the walls, the sides of the, of the street. And I don't want to see the brake lights. <laughs> so he's like, basically the only directions he got for his, for when he had the drive, because occasionally they did have to drive their own cars was, don't fucking crash the car. He said you don't get points for crashing the car. Uh and don't slow down. Like never hit the brakes. So so they drove their own cars occasionally and also they had a lot of they would put the actors in the actual cars while they had stunt drivers. He didn't want to fake it. He didn't want to composite the the actors into the driving scenes. Mm-hmm. So they were in the vehicles when they were being driven for the, for as much as possible. I saw for a few uh parts of it on like the the really narrow tight sections mm-hmm. they shot at like 21 frames per second so mm-hmm. that they could speed it up a tiny bit like yeah not a perceptible amount so that it looked like a speed ramp i think you can you can you can notice it a little bit mm-hmm. but uh it's not yeah it's he tried not to speed ramp as much as possible because he wanted to do as much real as he could it shows i mean yeah it's there it's what we talked about a lot on our bullet episode which is when the director is committed to the verisimilitude of a chase, it just makes it so much better. You can feel it in every minute of that of that chase. So just like Bullet, I think this is one of the great car chase movies. And just like Bullet, it sets up an incredible geography of those chases. You can tell that he loved the car and was trying to sell you that car the whole time. And, and you can tell that that commitment to doing it as real as possible, as much as possible just shines through in every fucking frame yeah and like the fact that it's all storyboarded out like it logically follows that like certain characters get separated from others and Stellan Skarsgård gets himself into a position where he can like steal the case or whatever like it seems to flow logically from the action like how the plot develops because it's not like I feel like a lot of times in movies like a car will just like flip over and or like blow up or something and like one character is like fine enough to walk out and like that's how the plot develops but like something like this it it's more readable like as to why certain characters like get hurt in crashes and stuff do you know how um speaking of like crashes and characters uh staying fine like they don't the main characters don't get in and wrecks and survive right like they just don't get in wrecks that much. Yeah, until they're the, wrecking other people's cars. The very end. Yeah, until until like they're supposed to, right? Yeah. But do you know how like um the the driver guy Skip's character uh 
during that first chase, his role is to like drive in and ram people off the road. Mm-hmm. You know, this movie is one of the inspirations for the video game series Burnout. I had seen that. That's the one where you're it's like an- trying to hit other cars. Yeah, <laughs> it's I didn't I like did not know that game was inspired by Ronin, which is very funny because there's like maybe two moments in like the chases in this movie where you can go like, oh, that's definitely a burnout thing <laughs> of the driver guy ramming a car off the road. Because, <laughs> yeah, burnout's about ramming the, the you're basically your your cars can juke left and right to hit the cars next to you. Hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not like what the movie is about. It's no, that's, that's why it's such a crazy yeah. thing. That's your takeaway from the movie. God, it's man, like, yeah, no, cool to I hit other a... cars with your car. Yeah, it, it's like making a movie that's all about. I made a sim. I made like a game that's like a simulation for living on a space station based on um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, because that's what that that's what, that's what that was about. It's to about me. it's about like, how do you maintain life on on the moon? I woke up for three minutes during the movie. <laughs> Then after the car chase and Skarsgård gets the the case, mm-hmm. I feel like the movie... gets paint on his hands. Yeah, he gets shot. Or wait, no, that happens later. Right. But I mean, I feel like after that, the movie just kind of gets into a, just a bunch of crossing and double crossing. It's a lot of power dynamics that don't feel too twisty because it's really a lot of this person gets the case and this person gets the case, right? And it's like yeah. someone is in the upper hand and it's all the same parties and they just keep getting the upper hand on each other back and forth, but not in twisty ways. It's just in ways of like, no, he pulled a gun on him now. <laughs> so it's like, it all flows logically in the scene. It doesn't, you never kind of get lost in who's where it's very obvious who's on top, uh-huh. but it keeps changing who's on top throughout the second half of the movie. Yeah. And like that, that's an interesting element about having it be like this whole post cold war ronin thing is that like none of these people have any like actual like ideological allegiances or anything like skarsgård is just trying to sell this yeah. case to the highest bidder what like he doesn't really yeah care he's just trying to make some money yeah so it's it's like probably a nuke or something right it doesn't matter what it is no, it's, it's uh, something that the ira needs it's ice skates i thought ice skates yes the little kids so it's like ice skates the russians have it initially the is russians are do we even know who the initial group is i don't think we do yeah Just i have no clue yeah some people have it a bald guy a bond villain has it basically <laughs> and they they rob it the ira wants it they say the russians and the chinese are bidding on it so the so like gregor is going to sell it to the russians there's like all these pe- people want this it's like it's it's that post Cold War. The entire world is a mess. There aren't power structures anymore. There isn't this like there's two sides. It's now you never know who's on top or who's the you know who is the the main power you're fighting against. The power you're fighting against is just like in secret and hiding, operating in the shadows, and you can't trust anyone anymore. That kind of theme that flows through post Cold War cinema, I think. Yeah, it's like lot. so nebulous that like not only do you not know the motivations for the people wanting this thing, like you don't even know what the thing is at all. Yeah. This that's like such a thing in it's like post Cold War pre nine eleven cinema. Yeah. Well you get the guy they go talk to some guy to like try and figure out what's going on with the Russians and he's like, Oh yeah, you know the deal. Like they were like soviet like part of the soviet system and now they're just the mafia it's like 
how these things are, have progressed. I love the yeah the guy who gives them info on the Russians is just like Come he just points to a giant sign for like the Russian ice skater and he's like you should probably go where the Russians are yeah the, if you want info on the Russians the Russian like ice ballet where she's skating to I'm sure this is like a real song but like the song that she's skating to I just know it as being the end of Step Brothers. <laughs> It's like the song that Brendan sings to make everyone like have like reveries in their minds. Yeah, she's she, she should be dancing to the Step Brothers version. Yeah, she should be skating to Boats and Hose. Yes, it's the ice skating. We're skipping ahead. That ice skating is beautiful, beautifully shot. Yeah, look, I think another Frankenheimer touch is that he knows not to cut the hell out of that ice skating. He just lingers on it and lets the the ice skating performance take center stage in that moment it's just like a brief moment of poetic beauty on screen that's another like part um or like a frankenheimer thing that i it shows up a bunch in the at the warhammer guy's house that like this kind of more classical like uh composition that you can get with the really wide depth of field where you can have something in the foreground that's like totally in focus that isn't like the subject of the scene and isn't one of the characters because like when she's ice dancing you have like a guy silhouetted in front of her that you can't Mm -hmm. see and like you'll have the toys or like a coffee cup that's like takes up a big part of the composition of a frame that Mm. is not like a technique that you see very much anymore Frankenheimer crafts scenes. The word I use for his filmmaking a lot of times is depth. His scenes always have a lot of depth to them. There's so many, there's always stuff in the foreground, the middle and the background mm-hmm. in so many of his shots. He, he creates this, this, this sense of like a multi-layered shot all the time. There's stuff. It's not just like, Hey, there's a one layer that where all the action is taking place on. It's no things exist in front of and behind our main characters at all times. Yeah. There. I feel like we've started jumping around, but the this part of the movie where like it's just like shifting stuff about the case, I, I has become kind of like jumbled in my head. But uh, there's like a second shootout um, where the driver gets killed and De Niro gets shot. But after that happens, um, it's like a thing that really jumped out to me because the rest of the car stuff is like so real and tactile looking that after De Niro gets shot and Renault is like taking him to his buddy or whatever, mm-hmm. they're talking in the car and it's like a very obvious, like rear projected, yeah, like fake car scene, uh, which is like, I it's really, like the only one I really liked though. Cause it like mm-hmm. makes the scene really like intimate. Um, and kind of like draws attention to the fact that they're like, you know, having this contained moment that like it kind of frees you from being in insane action car chase mode without actually having to like leave the car. Yeah. It, it almost like works so well because it's like, a, like you said, it's, it's a break from the hyper realism of the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and just for this one moment, we're not focused on, the reality and the verisimilitude were focused on these two guys. Yeah. I, it is an interesting and like effective technique to shift the scene out of action zone and into, uh, 
these guys love each other zone. Mm-hmm. But uh, I want to rewind a bit because there's a great scene after Gregor gets the case, right? They blow up. The car blows up. The, the fake case. De Niro gets a fake case with yeah. gray paint on it. <laughs> he, has, he's like, he immediately notices that it's fake, tosses it, dives out of the way, and lets his buddy, the driver, get blown up, basically. <laughs> but they fix him up. It's fine. Uh, For a little there's bit. A scene with Gregor. <laughs> there's a scene with Gregor, Stellan Skarsgård, in the car next to a, a, a playground. And yes. he's got his, a buddy, I think a Russian. It's a Russian guy. Yeah, it's a guy that's like him. attempting to make a deal. With. Yeah, and he he, he passes the guy down, takes his gun, and then he pulls out his gun, which is this customized silenced <laughs> gun with a scope on it. It looks like a Lego gun. <laughs> it looks like a toy gun. <laughs> he points out of the window at a kid. He's like, "See that little girl on the playground?" <laughs> <laughs> and he goes to no scoper, and the only reason he misses is because the fucking guy in the car stops him from shooting. Yeah, and he's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" He's so pissed off. He's like, and he's like, the point I'm making is I don't even know that girl. I was going to kill her. I don't even like you. What do you think I'm going to do to you if you fuck with me? What if that guy hadn't moved his hand, though? He just would have shot some little kid in the He would have chopped some kid. It's okay. His gun was silenced. No one could, no one would have known. Pew. But, uh, so the guy pulls, the, there's like a comedy bit there almost where like the guy in the car with him pulls out a second gun. <laughs> and yeah. Scarge is like, where'd you get that gun from? He's like, I should have checked. The guy just had a second gun. He just like, what do you have it like up his butt? He's he snuck it's it in his mouth. <laughs> he, just, well? he had to puke it <laughs> under his tongue. But no, uh, so he, he like kills the guy. It's like mad because the Russians tried to kill him and take the case for free. So this whole time, like De Niro and Renault are trying to find Gregor because he has the case and they got to find the case because mm-hmm. they were paid to get the case. You know they're. On, they're honorable men. They got to follow the job to it's finished. Uh, but uh, the scene I wanted to point out, it's a very simple thing, but I think it's kind of like classic Frankenheimer in like a little scene that you don't have to shoot with the level of craft and care that Frankenheimer will put in. But a signature of his movies, I think, is he takes little moments of just characters walking across a screen and and layers them. It's, it's when they're going to, to De Niro's CIA contact to get the uh, geolocation of Gregor's phone. Yeah. And it starts on a shot of, uh, of Renault outside on the street corner outside of a diner. And it follows him as he, tr- as he walks right, the camera pans, a-, a car passes in front of the camera. Then a cop car passes as the camera keeps panning. And so there's this like Renault in the background, cars passing through the street in the, in, in the center of the frame. And then as we keep panning to the right, we get the foreground becomes De Niro, who's on the other side of the street. And what could have been like a simple shot is painstakingly developing the sense of this location of where the diner is, the street that passes from it, what's on the other side of the road. Uh, Before we follow, uh, it's cuts back to like the other building next to where Renault was, where a guy comes out and we follow him and it does the same thing. He's in the background. We have elements that move in the middle of the frame in the foreground. And it's it's something like really simple where it's just these guys walking around this area outside of a diner as De Niro meets with his contact that could be shot very simply, but Frankenheimer takes such care to craft a layered image just for something that is an establishing shot before two characters interact. 
Right. And like, not, it's not an action scene. It's not heightened drama. It's literally, I'm establishing a location. So you have context for this conversation. Yeah. Apparently he did a lot of stuff like that too, so that it would be harder to like register in real time. Uh, when it went from like uh onset shooting to a stage yes which i i mean i think is super effective like it never feels like they're on some kind of constructed stage at any point so so i don't think it happens there because that shot was all outside Mm. but it happened at the beginning of the movie with the dine with the the bar because like the inside of the bar was a set but the all the establishing shots outside of it when De Niro snalking around was on location Mm. and they use like a match there was like a hidden cut when like it's like two ped- it's like pedestrians walk in front of the frame. And so it cuts to a different camera, which is shooting their set. So they can transition from the on for the on location shoot to the on the set that they built. Mm-hmm. And like they disguise it. And it's it's the same technique, whether he's hiding a shot or he's just establishing a scene. It's, he takes so much care just to make sure that his scenes like they feel lived in and and and. Like they have that, I keep saying the word depth. They have that depth to them. Mm-hmm. Also, Gregor says to the Russians, uh, what could have been done in a collegiate atmosphere is now fucked into a cocked hat. <laughs> Sorry, he doesn't say that. Deidre says that to, I think, Price or something like that. I mean, that just like. Such a great. That is a mammoth thing. Like to have. Fucked some, into a cocked hat. Someone talking like that. That's so good. Uh, but they have that shootout at the, it's a, it's an old Roman Coliseum mm-hmm. and that is just, I just want to, an incredible sequence. The characters are all over that Coliseum. It's another thing where Frankenheimer gets the most out of a location that he can, right? He's got like Renault and De Niro inside like the stands of the Coliseum while, uh, like Gregor is meeting people up on like a balcony somewhere. Like characters are all over this Coliseum at all times and we're cutting between them in a way that maintains this sense of the geography of that area. And we get, we get like, we're like using every element of the Coliseum we can uh, at all times. It's just, yeah, it's a really well-constructed sequence. It's just like the driving sequences where he figures out like a way to have a progression from one part of the stadium to the next Mm. instead of just like, Oh, I'm going to do a shootout in the stands. It's no, I'm going to do a shootout that I'm going to do a, a confrontation that starts out and the outskirts of it works its way into the stands and works its way outside again. That scene also has like a lot of uh, extras like popping into frame and getting plugged immediately. <laughs> yes. Because there's like a lot of people and like tour groups and stuff around while they're just having a shootout. You can't stress enough that, you know, you've seen Heat and they shot those 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 scenes in the middle of like, you know, L.A. Mm-hmm. But there's not a lot of people in the middle of those firefights. Yeah. It's, it's like the streets have been mostly emptied before the cops and the robbers are shooting out. And this movie, they're like, no, packed streets. There's people everywhere. Yeah. When they the fucking first car chase ends with a car ramming into a diner. And it was shot so like. Fucking there's there's two stuntmen that have to jump on top of the car as it hits mm-hmm. like their job was jump up onto the hood of the car so you don't get hit by the car. Yeah. People get hit and like there's like they don't shy away from the idea like no people are getting killed. I like the way it's it's after Price kills the driver the way he stops Gregor. Which is he kicks the door of the car open so Gregor hits the car door. 
It's really smooth. Yeah. He like kicks the door open and then he's sitting in the back seat, leaning back with his gun pointed out the open door. Yeah, I like his little pretending to be a tourist routine before he kills the mm. driver too. Jonathan, I just love Jonathan Price. Is this the coolest he's ever been? Yeah, probably. I'm, trying, I'm to... trying to think. I love him in other movies, but I don't know that he's ever like cool. Yeah, I mean, like Brazil is just all about him, like fantasizing about being cool. Mm. Brazil's amazing. Yeah, he's just—he's definitely not kill. He's definitely not cool in *The Man Who Killed Don Quixote*. It's a very different movie. He just seems like someone that's always having a great time being in mm-hmm. the, the movies. Oh yeah, he is. He is very fun in this movie. He's having a great time being a IRA terrorist. They call him a terrorist in the movie. I'm not calling the IRA terrorist. Don't don't get mad at me. And applies this. He's a freedom fighter. Is what I think. He's a freedom fighter. He's sort of like your George Washington. <laughs> George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, his character is supposed to be like he's supposed to, in this movie. They call him like a radical guy who's been denounced by the ira it's how they get away with this idea of like no the movie's not undermining the ira just this one ira guy yeah i wonder what he did they find they found out that he was actually british actor jonathan price yeah exiled him but it's after all that when they go to the warhammer guy's house yes yeah, so because in, the, in their escape from the play from the coliseum de niro gets shot with a gut teflon coated bullet yeah cop killer bullet fucker that's cheating yeah it is cheating. It's low. You can't do that. Yeah, yeah Teflon's for cooking eggs, man. Not, <laughs> not shooting De Niro. Yeah, it's for leaching toxins into your food. Yeah. It makes it healthier. It makes you strong from the inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I wrote down this the the guy who house they go to. I wrote down Castle Weeaboo because that's what that guy is. He he owns. He lives in a castle. Yeah, in France. Are they still in France or are, do they go to Italy? Yeah, that's in France. Okay. Because that guy's like, yeah, the guy, I always think he's Brian Cox. He's not Brian Cox. He looks a lot like Brian Cox to me. Yeah, I, I get that, I guess. Uh, but it's it's Michael Lonsdale is his name. That guy is a cool look. I really like him. He's got the long, he's rocking the long hair. Yeah. He's he's painting his little figures. like, And it's, it's really, they kind of like, it's funny because you think they're setting up like he paints these figures and like, oh, he has detailed hands. Like maybe he's the guy who's going to fix them up. But it's like, no, Renault and De Niro. Yeah. Do it. He's just got a house that they can use. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they do. De Niro asked to be taken to either a vet or like a doctor's office that he can rob. And Renault's like, I got one better. But like he doesn't take. I thought he was going to take him like a, to like a doctor friend. But it's like telling someone, no, I don't have to take you to the hospital. We're going to go crash in my pal's place. Yeah, we're going to like, my boy's house. <laughs> it's not a, it's like your boy's party house. It's not like an actual <laughs> medical center. Yeah, he does not help at all with the bullet removal. He just provides that. He watches. Them. I thought when they bring out the mirror, I thought uh, he was going to do the uh, uh, master and commander, like remove it himself. Mm-hmm. It's close. He gets to watch it. That's another, like, that's another Frankenheimer detail. It's like the focus on that mirror. Yeah. Yeah, like you don't have to do this this uh, shot from the. It's like it's like POV surgery. You're seeing it from De Niro's perspective, where you're watching the mirror. So you're watching Renault's hands and De Niro's faces in the mirror, and you're watching the, the body. And 
I'm sure they help with the effect. I'm sure it's like a fake body with Daenerys head poking up and the mirror helps disguise it. But I feel like a lot of directors would have shot it from the other direction where you just shoot it from uh, Renault's perspective at De Niro. But shooting it from the mirror, I just really love. It puts you in like, you're seeing De Niro's POV of the surgery scene, mm. which makes it so much grosser. Yeah. It, it's, not mu- it's not like they're just pulling a bullet out. There's something so gross about watching basically POV someone cutting, getting cut with a scalpel. Well, he fucks it up the first time too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause before he does it, De Niro's like, Oh, because of where it is, like there's nothing you can do that will like kill me. It's just going to hurt a lot. So please make sure you have a good grip on it before you try and pull it out. <laughs> but he slips the first time. Sorry. Yeah. There's, there's a good joke there. There's not a lot of joke lines. Like you said, but there's the De Niro says, uh, Something like, do you mind finishing up? I think I'm going to pass out. Yeah, at the he's end like, of the surgery. if you don't mind, I'm going to go pass out now. Yeah, <sighs> the. I know I said before I didn't love that the guy like talks to him about the Ronin, but I do think it's re- like De Niro's response to his story is really funny because mm-hmm. he's like, well, these were the 47 Ronin. They're like so mm-hmm. honorable. They had to all commit seppuku. They all killed themselves. And De Niro's like, that's dumb. <laughs> yeah he t- he says they chose wrong yeah it's stupid because because they have there's all the story and i really like this is the line where uh lonsdale delivers the theme of the movie he says you understand there's something other than yourself that which has to be served and when that need is gone that belief has died what are you a man without a master and he asked him like you understand that like they had no, you understand the choice of seppuku and De Niro just says they chose wrong. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> Shouldn't kill yourself. <laughs> I wouldn't have done that. It's De Niro's character who hasn't come to the point, at least when you don't know that he's still CIA. You, like, you, the way you see him in that scene is like he doesn't, he hasn't yet come to that point where he's realized that his lack of master is uh, damaging his soul in some way. But then you realize by the end of the movie, it's actually because his soul is fine because he has a master. Yeah, it's really it like in the moment it reads as really funny because he like it seems like he's saying like, oh, they chose wrong. Like I've found yeah. another way to be. But then at the end yeah, of the movie. Yeah, ripped to them, but I'm different yeah. is what he's saying. But then you figure out later that he just has actually never had to think about that before because he is still serving the big American master. He's still in CIA. So like. It, it's funny, but it does kind of get reframed at the end when you like figure out his whole deal, and then he's just fine. It's good to go once he gets that bullet out. Yeah, it's like you need. He take, he has his little he has a cute little cup of coffee in front of this giant like Warhammer display. The guy has a display <laughs> of of his like recreation of the forty seven Ronin. He's painted all these little samurai that he set up in a little uh, uh, diorama in his home. It's like he's like a model train guy, but yeah. for Ronan. He's retired. He was like a in that world of intelligence. French CIA, whatever they have over there. Mounties? Yeah, fucking something like that? Nothing. French Mounties? I don't know what they have in France. Do they have special forces in France? No, just baguettes and yeah. striped sweaters. He was like a baker. Yeah. <laughs> it's the French equivalent. <laughs> yeah their equivalent of special forces it's like a guy on an old-timey bicycle it was it was a 
basically a baguette shaped sheath for his samurai sword. So <laughs> yeah. you, you opened it up and inside the baguette was a samurai sword. Yeah, that's how they do it over there. Croissants that are just like a croissant. Shuriken. Yeah. Spiky. Yeah. Spiky croissants. <laughs> and cigarettes, obviously. Yeah, they got the cigarettes too. Yeah, they got cigarettes too. Man, French people are so easy to riff on. They've got like four things. <laughs> he was a mime. Because the next thing they do after they after he gets fixed up is they have because Gregor is kidnapped by the IRA. They've got to go get Jonathan Price, Deirdre, and Gregor, and so they get they 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 car chase against them. So that chase is incredible too because that also goes through this again a progression where it's starts out on the roads. They end up going the wrong way. They go through some tunnels going the wrong way. What, are they're in and, Paris? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of it's great chase it has like and i just love it just both of these chases because they're so long they have to but they they have these different sequences so you go they're going the right way in the road they go the wrong way through some tunnels they end up on the highway going the wrong way and then they end up at a construction site where just like price's car goes over the edge yeah off the highway classic move yeah the having them drive against the flow of traffic is so sick cool. because it makes it feel like they're going a million miles an hour. It's not as dangerous feeling as the chase into live and die in LA because to live and die in LA chase feels, it, it feels like it should never, it feels, it feels evil. It feels like it feels, I know they're not going the wrong way in the movie. Like they, that, that's all choreographed. It's not real, but it feels scary. <laughs> in this one, it doesn't feel scary for the characters. It feels scary for the fucking civilian cars who like, there's multiple cars where the there's a car where the driver gets shot. Then he like crashes and blows up. Uh huh. And he's not the only civilian to die. There's a car they flip in one of those tunnels. There's a yeah. And there's a part where they like a big like panel truck gets popped up onto two wheels, runs over like three mm-hmm. other cars and then flips onto another car. Yeah. This is the block off traffic basically. Yeah. The chases in this movie are dangerous for everyone except the main characters in the chase. There are movies where the chases feel dangerous for the main character. In this movie, I'm like, oh, I don't feel like they're going to get in trouble. But man, are they fucking up every civilian <laughs> around them at all times. Usually going the wrong way means that, oh, the civilian cars are an obstacle for our main characters to get past. This movie going the wrong way means, oh, those people are going to die. Yeah. All those civilians are in trouble. Is one thing about this that like my my little cinema sins ding is that like they're never operating like they are like international fugitives for like wreaking havoc they're just like going to diners and like interpol some for some reason isn't looking for this group of like five people that keep like having shootouts in the street that killed half of france (laughs) blowing up every city they go to I, I think it's awesome they don't deal with that. It's like, in real life, these guys killed like a couple dozen people in like two days. They're just walking around but in broad daylight. It's just the movies. Sipping their little drinks. Yeah, there's no cops after them. No, there's no cops, period. There's cops the one, one time they have to make out. Yeah, just one cop. But uh, yeah, they get to the end of this, like, it's, hey, the, the, the highway ended, and oops, the Irish, like, drive <laughs> off the end of it. And like Gregor runs off. He just like he this is like this is the moment where like Gregor's back on top. He was on top. The IRA stole him and then the IRA was on top. Now Gregor's back on top. He's got the case. And he's going back to the fucking ballet skating Russians. Yeah. I feel like I'm 
particularly bad at like following shit like like i would be the world's worst spy <laughs> like whenever i watch born movies it's just like washing over me i've seen them all a bunch of times could not tell you like any of the plot points of the born franchise i mean it, it, you're right that it doesn't really matter the fact that gregor worked with the russians all along yeah i just i think it's nice that um for like a dumb guy like me that it doesn't like hamper the viewing experience mm. if you can't track what's going on the plot of the movie doesn't really matter roger ebert's review is basically like he gives it three out of four stars praises the hell out of it and then goes like the end he's like you know they hired mammoth to do this maybe for a little more time they hired mammoth to do rewrites maybe if he had a little more time he could have put a story on it <laughs> it's like the final line of the roger ebert review where like ebert dug the movie but his review is basically like form is incredible there's like no story yeah i mean he just can't help getting a little dig in whenever he can a little sick burn at the end of his positive review He's right. The ice dancing thing, you get a little uh, Manchurian candidate sniper in the rafters action going mm-hmm. on. That is fucked up. Yeah. Pretty cool. It's pretty fucking sick. It's pretty fucking funny that the, the Russians just like, uh, he like, <laughs> Gregor's plan is <laughs> if you don't let me leave and call my sniper, she will kill your ice skater. And the Russian like spends. 45 seconds, as much time as he has before Gregor has to make the phone call. This, like, weighing his options, deciding, how much do I, how much money do I owe Gregor versus how much money is this ice skater worth? Yeah. And then he just pop, he just ices Gregor, shoots him right in the fucking forehead. Yeah. Yeah. Let's his ice skater die. "Hmm, The ice skater or this case? The case is pretty. Well, like cool. he could have had both. He just had to lose what three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. I guess what? How much is an, a Russian ice skater worth? These d- in this market. I guess it was ninety eight dollars. Uh, that's probably close to a million dollars with inflation these days. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. In Biden's mm. America. In Biden, thanks, Brandon. Hard to buy Russian ice skaters right now. Yeah. Uh, the price on everything's gone up uh, uh, and plus no one wants to work anymore <laughs> good luck getting someone to be in a Russian ice skater these days it's dangerous work anyway though yeah you get shot by <laughs> fucking KGB I love so in that section while Gregor is doing his negotiation perfectly planned I think like Gregor and Sam the De Niro character and the Skarsgård character spend the whole movie outsmarting everyone around them they're always planning like their next move to be on top in every interaction. They've always thought ahead. Those are the two characters that have always thought ahead. And so like while Gregor's like, I thought ahead, I'm going to kill your ice skater if you don't give me my money. Meanwhile, De Niro and Renault are trying to get into the backstage and their plan to get backstage is to punch every security guard. Mm-hmm. It's like literally they go up to security guard, punch him in the face. Then there's two security guards and they both punch him. Like that's their plan. How do you get backstage? Beat everyone up. Yeah. Well, then you can take their badges and then you can just walk out onto the ice. I just love that they spend the movie. De Niro is the smartest guy in the room at all times. He's always planning ahead and then punch everyone. That's how I get through. That's how I get through security. I mean, well, he's realized that being smart 
it do- it doesn't work. He's getting beat at every turn. He's got to try mm. something new. You got to try being dumb. Sometimes <laughs> try being dumb. Got to try being dumb. Roughhousing. But uh, they get on the ice. The ice skater's dead. And this is another just classic Frankenheimer shot. It's a dead body. There's paramedics in the foreground tending to this dead body. In the center of the frame uh, is De Niro and Renault crossing the ice. And then behind them is a panicking crowd as it tries to escape. Again, we have multiple layers to this image. Where like I think a lot of other directors would cut to the body as its own flat image cut to our characters going across the ice and just use that intercutting to make that scene play. Frankenheimer's like, everything's going to be in the same shot and I've layered it. So there's depth to the image. You understand where the relation to every single object of the scene is before I cut to someone individually within the scene. Yeah. Uh, the, I like, like I kind of joked before that the, uh, the romance thing isn't really there except for the one case, but it does come back in the end when, uh, De Niro tells Deirdre to like get out of there. No, he gives her the so it's like they're about to take down uh Jonathan Price and he goes with a Deirdre's car and he gives her the I like you don't come into school tomorrow. Yeah. Oh yeah, he does. <laughs> he, he goes up and says he's like, just go. Just go now. I came back for Gregor. I came back I came back for your boss. I don't care about the case. Get out of here now. Uh I like you don't come into school. You need to get away. <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, Jonathan Price is trying the classic. I dressed up in a fancy little la- little lad outfit. Now no one will suspect me. And then he just starts blasting. Uh, he does the. Have you seen um Goldfinger? Oh, but Goldfinger, uh, there's a moment at the end of the movie. There's the invasion of his base. And the way he sneaks away is he gets into his office and puts on a hat and then leaves. And he sneaks past the the army by having an army hat on. That's exactly what Jonathan Price is in this movie. He puts on a security outfit and just sneaks past. He's catch me if you canning them. Mm-hmm. He's got on a pilot's uniform walking out. But he gets got. He gets super got. Yeah. And De Niro's like, I can't go with you because I'm still CIA. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well- I, I love the way Bryce gets got, which is they they're they're outside. They end up going back like they're chasing him from the inside of the stadium because he's gotten the case after Gregor's dead. The Russians get the case. Price shows up and shoots the Russians and he takes the case. Then like they're chasing him through the ice, uh, the rink. Then they then it transitions to outside with the panicking crowds and everyone's running away because there's been a murder. And then their chase Price ends up getting like blocked because like the fucking CIA guy is at the blockade that's holding the crowd and Price notices him and runs back inside and they're chasing. So they're going through again. It's another moment where Frankenheimer has been given an environment and he's insistent on using all of it as much as possible. And we ended inside and it's De Niro against Price, but Price has the upper hand and then suddenly he gets shot. And who is it? It's your boy Renault up in the stands hurt as hell he's all i'm all shot up but not too shot up to kill price nothing to gain from any of this like ostensibly like that's just boys that's his employer who has gotten the case that they've been trying to get to him the whole time well they were trying to kill him anyway so like what they had to get was gregor was going not gregor fucking jonathan price whose character name i don't know off the top of my head was going to kill them and so might as well kill him back Mm mm-hmm because yeah, like the big twist here is that he was like never gonna pay them because he didn't have any money. Yeah, but 
he is still their uh their shogun or whatever. I think the honorable thing for Jean Renault to do would be to shoot himself. Mm. So true. They should have shot him and then shot themselves after, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, yeah, to preserve they, their honor. They they could have seppuku'd with their guns. You'd have to shoot yourself in the gut like 17 times to make a line you to bring, actually uh, get a get a cut going across. Yeah, you bring out a smaller gun to shoot yourself in the stomach while your partner <laughs> takes your big gun and shoots you in the head. <laughs> Fucking Mishima with guns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You really got to be careful. You got to shoot across the gut so the bullet skims and does slice it open. Yeah, I, there's a whole technique to gun. Yeah, it's hard. That's a, you know, that's where the scar, I think that's where Brody's scar came from in, in Jaws. He, <laughs> he, did mess to... up, he messed up seppuku, gun seppuku. <laughs> he doesn't want to talk about it. That's why he doesn't talk about it. He's like, it's, like, I, it's kind of an embarrassing story. That's uh, why he had to leave New York. He, he messed up a case. He tried to commit gun seppuku. It didn't work. This is going to sound made up, but Jonathan Price's character is named Seamus O'Rourke. <laughs> I don't believe you. According to Wikipedia. That sounds like uh, I had asked you on the spot and you had to come up with Quick, name an like, Irish the guy. most Irish name you could. <laughs> yeah, he's Seamus O'Rourke. I came up to a name one Irish guy and you went, off. <laughs> Seamus O'Rourke? Seamus O'Rourke. Thank God he was brought back. That's like on the radio at the end of the movie that like this Irish terrorist has been caught and like I imagine De Niro going back to the CIA and then being like well the mission's over you caught the terrorists and you only killed 120 civilians and giving like a big promotion and a raise (laughs) he killed so many people good job technically I guess none of the civilians that died were from his bullets no I mean, it's not his fault that Jonathan Price shot a civilian while they were chasing him on the wrong way through a fucking tunnel. Pretty reckless with civilian yeah. lives, like bazookaing mm. cars in the street. Couldn't you have just like called in a drone strike on his car? Yeah, nowadays that would only kill like twenty civilians. So after they got Price, they do like that cute little coffee scene between the at the bar. I think they're drinking coffee though between Renault and De Niro. And it's this like little meet cute where they're just like talking about like, what's next? What are you doing? And Renault's like, she's not coming, dude. I know. I tell that, that the De Niro's girlfriend's not coming. De Niro leaves him. Um, I really like that ending moment. It's a, it's a nice little cap on their little friendship of like this friendship of convenience. This like two professionals that have enjoyed their time with each other, acknowledging that they'll probably never see each other again, but that they've made like this impact on each other. This bond is unspoken uh connection yeah that's just guys being dude guy stuff man <laughs> so the the other ending they, they filmed like three endings in this movie one of them that audiences hated was deirdre they they show her getting into a van instead of coming to the bar so like after she gets to a van and it's a bunch of ira people who kill her that sounds for awesome. failing permission <laughs> that sounds rad Audiences hated it, so they they cut a version that was she shows up and De Niro and her meet up. So it's or like she gets into his car with him at the end of the movie. This implication that their romance is continuing or something, which Frankenheimer hated. So he split that, but audiences loved. Test audiences loved it. So he split the difference at the demand of the studio. He found a middle ground, which is that she doesn't show up at all, and it's it's it hangs in the air what happened with her. 
which I like way more than either of the other two options. Yeah. I, I like not knowing like her getting killed at the end of the movie feels like it's too neat. I don't like the idea of like, Oh, they had to wrap up the one last loose uh, thread. I mean, that also just feels like pretty nasty for this yeah. movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems like it would feel pretty like out of pocket based on it. That would feel else. even more anti IRA than the movie. <laughs> they all get killed <laughs> because like we have talked about, you said the radio broadcast. The radio broadcast says that you know they they tries to like wash its hands of the IRA thing by saying, "Oh, Jonathan Price's character was actually denounced by the IRA." Yeah. So it's not actually this movie's not actually reflective of the. But then also it says that the IRA reached an agreement with the British government for peace because of the apprehension of this guy. So it's like, oh, he's been denounced, but also him getting killed is why the war is ending yeah <laughs> so it's trying to have its cake and eat its too on being like kind of a little uh listen he wasn't with us on an unrelated note we are kind of leaderless now so if we could end this whole thing <laughs> it's a weird note i'm not gonna say i know enough about the politics of that situation to have an opinion on how the movie uses it it just feels weird oh yeah i'm not I, <laughs> i'm not gonna, <laughs> not gonna i'm saying i i think all sides you know have points or don't depending on what you want me to say sure yeah the audience the troubles very troubling (laughs) what a silly name they should make a sequel ronin 2 where de niro gets his last assignment and he has to kill jean renault he's conflicted about it that's my pitch Mm, no i think they have to i think they'd have to be teaming up again oh they would they would end up teaming up to take down the CIA. What if it was the opposite and they they started teaming up and then they had to turn on each other? That'd be cool too. I think it would be more satisfying to me if they came together to take down the U.S. Uh, government. So De Niro sent after Renault because he's like, he's doing too many troubling things in France or something. He's causing the troubles in France. He's causing the troubles too. <laughs> French, gotta, French edition. The French troubles. <laughs> And they have to they need him to take down Renault. They send him over there. And when he gets over there, he realizes that actually it's the CIA that's bad. Duh. What? Yeah. He's got to team up with Renault and uncover this conspiracy. Of how the CIA is bad. Yeah. Okay. That's that's That was also our pitch for uh, Top Gun Maverick, which is not what they did. Wait, what was our pitch for Top Gun Maverick? Our Top Gun, Ma- our Top Gun episode had us saying that Maverick would have his own independent nation oh, right, of Top Gun pilots go that would then take down the like American imperial system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would have been cooler. So, it's kind of sounding like we have one idea. You know, it's a good idea. <laughs> we got one idea for a movie. Lots of great writers have one idea for a movie sure yeah i mean we're just michael mann that's our art we're iterating on uh um, it's a deep well that we're drawing from if you do it twice you're a hack if you do it 10 times you're an auteur yeah you're a great artist Mm -hmm. we're just drawn to all of these movies about like how the uh, like american intelligence community is so cool and badass or one idea to rework them is the characters <laughs> deciding that actually they're bad. Actually, they're bad, but the character is still cool. Yeah, but the guy is still cool. The guy is still cool, and all his skills that he learned were still cool. <laughs> and will be helpful for uh, dismantling. Taking him down. 
What do you think about this movie on like a thematic level? Do you think it even comes together to say anything with that Ronin concept by the end? Uh, not really. I think that whole part of it is kind of like undercooked. That's what I end up thinking too. Like I watching it since this is my second time, I kept wanting to like try to read something into it. And there's like almost like a little bit of an idea of it using the concept of Ronin to talk about like a post cold war world where like there aren't, uh, loyalties you can rely on because people don't have a, a code anymore they don't have a, a leader but like but then by the end it that doesn't really seem to play much into it because of who the de niro care the fact that the de niro character ends up being cia yeah the twist at the end kind of like undercuts any kind of like interesting thing that the movie could be saying on that front i think yeah it's it's almost like it it doesn't matter for the film itself in the end because the movie's not really about that story. No, no, no. Yeah, it's like I think like the twist with with De Niro makes it at least makes it more interesting as an action movie story. But the theme at the heart of that Ronin concept, uh, which is funny because that was like the heart of the original script. The script was inspired by like the story of the Forty Seven Ronin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of like betrays that to do what it thinks is like a more interesting. What ends up being Slightly more interesting, I guess, action, plotting, twisting. Yeah, I don't hate it. Like, I don't think it's like, you know, some big weight on the movie that like uh, the whole Ronan thing kind of doesn't really hold up to a lot of prodding. I this movie is way more endearing now. I just read one simple fact while skimming uh, while talking to you. It's that the writer of the of the movie who was a newcomer to writing films, came up with the idea for the movie after reading James Clavell's Shogun. Do you know when, do you want to guess when he read it and when he came up with the script? When he was like 14. 15, exactly. Fuck yeah. <laughs> it says at the age of 15, he read the book, came up with the idea for the movie and made it as an adult. And now I have just reconfigured the whole story of this movie, the plotting of it, the concept, its usage of that theme, its inability to find like a heart to the, a, a, a pin to put on that. Uh-huh. Like, it's inability to find like a, the core thing to say about it. I am now like all of that rushing through my mind. Like I'm at like, the end of 2001 realizing like, no, it's because it's a 15 year old's idea of what this story is. Awesome. No. I'm back. It works perfectly now. I agree that like knowing that makes it way cooler. Yeah. Knowing that like an adult looked back in an idea he had when he was 15 and stayed true to what, a, whether intentionally or not, stayed true to what a 15 year old's idea of this movie is. Oh, I mean, that like just to get one of the great American masters to realize the visions of a 14 year old, 15 year old boy. <laughs> pretty sick. Yeah, I've I held on to this idea for a fucking movie <laughs> since the age of 15 and I got the guy who made the train. And Manchurian Candidate to do it for me. Yeah, they tried to big brain it with David Mamet, but the simpleness of my idea won out in the end. Yeah, they they tried to punch it up. They tried to be like, this is a Mamet picture. But no, it's Mamet punching up a, a teenager's movie. That's like, that's great. That's the ideal form. So we kind of did general thoughts up front. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> this was your first time watching Ronin uh what do you think about it where does it sit for franken this is our first frankenheimer picture so where does this sit for frankenheimer for you like where are you at 
Um, like as far as in what I've seen from Frankenheimer, it would probably be like on a on a lower tier. Um, but just as far as like movies generally, I I mean I think it's really good. I don't think it touches something like uh like seconds or like the train. Um, and I also don't think I like it as much as you know some of the movies that i had in mind while like i don't like it as much as heat and i don't think i like it as much as the first mission impossible Mm -hmm. um but i mean it's still like an east like a four star movie for me oh yeah Uh, i'm exactly there second time watching it it's it's a four star first time it's it's a four star for me where it's like i can sit here and say yeah it's not as good as heat yeah it's not as good in terms of frankenheimer i put it Obviously, it's not as good as the trainer. It's not as good as seconds. It's it's clearly on like his second tier for me. But that's like saying it's not as good as some of fucking masterpieces. Yeah, it's not, right. <laughs> like what, what we're saying here is like this is a great movie that's not as good as some of the best movies ever made. Yeah, exactly. This is such a rad movie to sit here and watch. It's a it's a great watch. It flies by. It's got two of the best car chases you could fucking watch. Absolutely. If you want to do anything at all, I mean, watch the whole movie, please. The movie is on Pluto. It's on Tubi. It's on YouTube with ads. It's on Amazon with ads. You can find a place to watch this for free right now. Doesn't matter. Watch this movie. But if you watch anything from this movie, watch the fucking car chases. Incredible. I don't even know if I would change the script now that I know it's a 15 year old's idea of a movie. because It's so fucking cool. (laughs) But it's like, yeah, it's just like, if it had a if it had a perfect script, it would be it would just kick it up the next notch. Mm-hmm. This is one of those movies where it is like a decent kind of like B tier script that has been punched up by all the performers involved, the director involved, the cinematographer involved, who are just firing in all cylinders and making up for what is kind of like a thematically shallow piece of writing. But again, that's like saying, yeah, there's a movie where every fucking element of it is perfect, like the train, it's not as good as that. <laughs> Next week, we're going to dig into Taken, Liam Neeson. I think the movie takes place in Europe, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I haven't seen it. I'm pretty excited to watch it. I am, too. Like, if you thought this was kind of a dumb guy European action movie, oh, boy. (laughs) I'm I'm pumped. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I don't think I've seen any of the Neeson actioners other than (laughs) A-Team. <laughs> I haven't seen the shit he I haven't seen like nonstop or any of the other the commuter or whatever other movies he's been in recent years. Uh so I'm excited. For that we do have a guest. It is Sam Owen at D Sam Owen on Twitter. He's coming to talk to us one week from today. Check that episode out, I guess. I hope it's gonna be a great one. I'm really excited to talk to Sam about Taken. I'm really excited to watch Taken. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I'm pumped. But until then, you can keep listening to the podcast. Wherever you're listening to it right now, follow the podcast at Dadcore Cinema. Dad- Dadcore Cinema. I think I said Cinema. Uh, Dadcore Cinnamon. Uh, you can follow <laughs> me on Twitter at that one guy 64 Charlie, where can we find you? The Tum Boy. I'm posting feed on there now. Yeah, you are posting feet. Is that one in your circle, though? Uh, no, I just put a content oh, you warning on it. it. <laughs> yeah. It was, I knew it was something like that. I had to click a button. But if you don't mind, I'm going to pass out. Bye. Bye.